Welcome. Uh, let's all get our uh, Bibles out. Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, title of the message is Right Relationships. Right Relationships, my sense is uh, most, if not all of you, uh, would want, would desire, would prefer uh, to have right relationships with uh, yourself, with others, and certainly with God. I, that's probably not an issue for anyone in the room. Uh, but the question, the question that probably a lot of us have to wrestle with is, am I willing to do what it takes? Am I willing to do what God calls me to do in order to have uh, right relationships? And here in, in Matthew 7, Jesus moves from what we saw at the end of Matthew 6, where he's moving away from our relationship with possessions and money and things to our relationship with people, uh, namely with uh, others and with God. And at a, at a casual glance, if you were to just read the first 12 verses of what we're going to be looking at here this morning, if you were to just read those, it would seem as if there's this massive shift away from what he had been talking about to, to where he's going now. And it almost would feel like it's just this shotgun approach of do this, don't do this, and there's this, and there's that. And yet the reality is, as we begin to move through this, hopefully what will become clear to you is that Jesus is moving us through a progression of what right relationships look like, what they entail, how they come to be. And, and at the expense of sounding like a broken record, I think I've said this every week as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like this week, maybe more than any other week, it's necessary that you have to, have to, have to recognize He is speaking first and foremost to the heart. Because if you, if you see this as some kind of behavioral moralism, some, some kind of behavioral modification that, hey, do this, don't do this, stripped of the context of the heart, you're going to miss the entire point. And, and in fact, I would suggest to you that uh, the first verse that we're going to read here in a moment is uh, one of, if not the most misused, misquoted, misapplied verses on the planet today. All right? And it's because people will often strip it of the context, both in the immediate context of uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, but also the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' engagement of the believer's heart. So at the expense of not falling into that, of this not becoming some behavioral modification, uh, let's come now to uh, the passage uh, first 12 verses of Matthew 7. Here's what Jesus says. <clears throat> Judge not. And how clear is that? Judge not. Don't do that. That you be not judged. Now that's oftentimes where people want to stop, but uh, Jesus didn't stop there. He says, For the, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? And then another verse that we like to strip of its context, like the golden rule, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your desire is to teach us and to instruct us. We thank you that, God, more than anything, that uh, you long to draw, for us to draw near to you, uh, that you have gone to great lengths uh, to allow that. And God, I pray that we would not take that for granted, that we would not be flippant or casual uh, with your great sacrifice on our behalf. God, I pray as we open your word that you would come and teach us, that you would reveal your truth to us, that you would make known uh, the very things that you uh, so desperately want us to hear, that we so desperately need this week. But God, not only for us, I pray for Pastor Tom Brainerd and for Trinity Reformed Church. I pray for Pastor Tom this morning as he brings forth the truth of your word that, uh, that you would administer powerfully through him. And for his people, your people, that, uh, that they would be gripped by the very things that you have for them. And God, for us, in these next few moments as we uh, endeavor to understand what exactly it is that you're saying. Would you give us uh, wisdom and clarity, but would you also give us the courage to respond appropriately to these things? Come, teach us now. Have your way with us. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Right relationships, right relationships. Let's start with this thought. Uh, you can't be. You can't have a relationship that is wrong and expect to have anything else that is right. Okay, you can't be wrong with God and right with others in the same way that you can't be right with others and wrong with God. You, you understand that? You get that? Okay. Uh, now you can be wrong with God and wrong with others. That is certainly a, a possibility, though I wouldn't really suggest shooting for that. Okay. Uh, but you can't say, well, I, I'm, I'm right with God, but know full well that you're wrong with someone over here. Because in reality, you're not right with God. You, you're, you're deceiving or fooling yourself if you think that to be true. In the same way that you, you can't possibly be right with others if you're wrong with God. And so this right relationship, sometimes we want to isolate these things and think, well, I can, I can be right here. And yeah, I guess I got to do some work here. No, no, you're You're wrong. You're just wrong. So know that, understand that, that as we move through this, that we, we, we don't get to be preferential and oh, I, I can do that over here but not be that over here. Four things that, that I want us to engage here this morning, really three areas, and the final one will function as a summary in verse 12. But notice this first of all in verses 1 through 5. Uh, right relationships with believers. Right relationships with believers. I'll tell you right here at the outset, we're going to spend a lot of our time in verses 1 through 5, partly because there's so much uh, wrong thinking, misunderstanding, bad interpretation of these uh, verses that, that we've got to make sure that we understand what exactly it is that Jesus is saying. 
Because I'm sure, I'm sure that all of us, all of us, all of us can think of at least one example, if not a number of times in your life where someone has come up to you and you've said, hey, I don't think that's a good idea or you shouldn't do that or that's wrong. Hey, you're a Christian. Jesus tells you not to judge. Okay, true confessions. Who's been there? Okay. Um, hopefully, hopefully you haven't used that really bad uh, exegesis and really poor theology on someone else because you've completely missed the heart of what Jesus is saying. See, in verse 1, Jesus starts talking about, the, and you have to see verses 1 through 5 as a whole. Okay, you can't, you can't just pull one verse out and strip it of the rest of the context because it is, the, the, the wholeness of verses 1 through 5 uh, helps to fill it in and explain it all. But here in these five verses, Jesus is talking about right relationships with believers. And he starts with this idea of don't judge. And in verse 1, we recognize part of the, the failure or the wrongness in judging is that we have a wrong view of God. Part of what Jesus gets at, judge not that you be not judged, is that we would judge. And there's a wrong view, there's a wrong perspective that we have of God. And so understand this, because there's so much wrong thinking on this verse, let's just take a few moments and be really clear about what it is and what it isn't. First of all, the word judge in Matthew 7 uh, is the Greek word krino, which simply means to choose, to select, to prefer. That sounds pretty innocent, doesn't it? In fact, the reality is all of you have executed that on a number of levels today. You all chose what to wear. You all chose what to eat for breakfast or what to choose not to eat breakfast. You chose what time to get up. You chose to come to church. So let me ask you something. Are you, is that inherently sinful and wrong because you made some decisions? Uh, no, it's not. Okay, that's not what he's saying. I mean, the, 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 the logic in that is highly problematic. And so that's not what he's saying. He's, he's not saying that, hey, you know what, if you ever make a decision, it's wrong. Now, now, oftentimes what people do with this verse is they say, well, here's what he's really saying. What he's saying is you can't ever tell me that anything that I choose or anything that I say is wrong to do. Because that's a judgment. Okay, help me understand something here. Let me just make sure I'm clear on this. I can never tell you if you're right or wrong. Yeah, that's what he's saying. You can't judge Okay, isn't that in and of itself a judgment statement? I mean, help me understand this. Isn't that exactly what that is? Right? And so the logic in that breaks down. In fact, when you come to certain passages in the Scripture, one of the, one of the best things that you can do is you let Scripture interpret Scripture. You let the whole of Scripture speak into a specific Scripture. So let's just let the whole counsel, the full counsel of God's word begin to speak into this because if we just took this at face value and nothing else, it's like, well, certainly we can't judge. We can't make any decisions. We can't make any preferential um, 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 decisions based upon uh, what Jesus is saying. And yet in verse 5, Jesus is going to tell us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. In verse 15, he's going to call some people false teachers and ravenous Wolves. I don't know, that seems kind of judgmental to me. What do you think? 
Uh, in Matthew 23, Matthew 23 is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture because Jesus just goes full-blown ballistic on the religious leaders. Here's just some of the things that he calls them. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them serpents. He calls them fools. He calls them hypocrites, okay, whitewashed tombs. I don't know. I think that's probably judgmental if you really want to go there. You go, well, that's Jesus. That, that, you know, he, he's God, so he can do that. You ever read the prophets? You ever read Isaiah? You ever read Jeremiah? You ever spend any time in Ezekiel? I mean, we could choose from hundreds and hundreds of scriptures. Here's just a few. Uh, here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 29. He says, because this people draws near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their heart is far from me. Yeah, that seems kind of judgmental. Uh, Jeremiah 2, my people have committed two evils. You've done two things wrong. Now, that's pretty judgmental. And then he tells them exactly what it is. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Jeremiah 3, speaking of Israel, he refers to them as the faithless one. Do you know that in Ezekiel 16 that Ezekiel consistently refers to the nation as whores. His words, not mine. And then he goes so far as to say, he's like, you're worse than prostitutes. Worse than prostitutes because they actually get something in exchange, but you're paying people for your services. I don't know, that seems kind of harsh. That seems kind of judgmental. And yet, that's... Right? This scripture interpreting Scripture. Well, that's Old Testament. I love that argument as if it's somehow less God's Word because God somehow changed when Jesus came. Please, but just we'll go with that for a second. Here's 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, Paul says, Deliver one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. It's pretty hardcore. And then here, here's the one for me that, that just really solidified. I, I flip over and see this. I want you to see this. Philippians 1. Flip over to Philippians 1 real quick. We looked at this a little while ago, but repetition's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, I want to start in verse 15. Here's the context. Paul's talking about the advance of the gospel, the gospel going forward. And there's two different groups of people, uh, and, and he breaks them into two different groups based upon uh, how they view this advance of the gospel. Here's what he says. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. So some people are preaching for all the right reasons and some people are preaching for all the wrong reasons. And then he says this, verse 16, he, he tells us their specific motives. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So the, there were some people in Paul's day who were preaching the gospel just to stick it to him. And he's kind of like, ha-ha, joke's on you, I'm all for that, right? But, but the, the motive was wrong. Now, now, here's the wisdom, here's the teaching, here's the principle. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that's the motive part. Here comes the action behavior part. Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. See, what Paul is teaching us is he's saying, you, you have no right to judge the intent. You have no right to judge the motive. You have every right to judge the conduct and behavior of fellow believers. You understand? Do, do, do you recognize that? See, that, that's part of the importance of us sharing life and doing life with one another, is that we engage one another in these different things. See, because what Paul is really getting at 
or, or what Jesus is really getting at here in Matthew 7, right? Coming back to the heart is not that we can't speak into each other's lives, but he's getting at the manner of which we would choose to speak into one another's lives. Do, do, do I do it in some kind of uh, superiority or this critical, condescending, uh, nose up, oh, look at you. See, because no one, no one who recognizes what God and Christ has done for them could possibly look at someone else like that with any integrity. See, because there's this massive humility that has to come. The, 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 the truth that, that loving confrontation carries with it the connotation of, of, I love you, and I love you enough to help you. And see, in that, there's, there's a great humility, there's a great understanding, because I'm keenly aware of my own shortcomings and my own failures, and today it's you, tomorrow it's going to be me. How many people in here would agree that God has a sense of humor, right? I think God has a sense of humor. I think he's got the best sense of humor. Um, so I'll just kind of let you in on how I was the butt of, of one of God's jokes this week. Um, so uh, Tuesday night at our life group, we had one of our couples came over, and they were kind of having a little tiff, a little marital tiff. Everyone has them, right? And uh, so, so I actually I went to them and, and just right there in our house, right, because I love them and I care for them. I'm like, hey, do, do we need to go sit down and do we need to talk about this or do you guys need to get this settled? No, we're good, we're good. And they went and they, they got it settled. And so then fast forward three days later and all three of our boys have August birthdays. Um, so we had the terrible idea of doing them all at once, uh, which was a recipe for just a disaster in my life uh, to crowd what seemed like 3,000 small children into our home. Okay. And uh, so, so uh, Becky and I got into an argument. It was all her fault, except that none of it was. It was really all my fault. All right. And, and so, lo and behold, because God's hilarious, that same couple was there right in front of us witnessing all of that. And so, in the humor of the moment, which I didn't appreciate in the moment, they just both said to me, hey, do we need to go into the other room and talk about this? <laughs> right? So, because God's got a sense of humor in that. And, and, and that's the reality, is one day it really is me, and then the next day it really is going to be you. No, no one's immune from this. But, but when it comes to the, the, the engagement of one another, do we approach it with humility? Do we approach it with love? Do we approach it with grace? Or is there some kind of superiority? You're like, okay, okay, I, I get that, I get that, but how is that a wrong view of God? I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to see that. Well, it's a wrong view of God because it's a low view of God and it's a high view of yourself thinking that you could somehow be superior or better than another. See, only Jesus himself could make that claim. Only God himself could legitimately say, no, I am better than you. Don't lose sight of that. You and I could never say that one to another. We have no right saying that. And so it's this skewed view of God that I could stand in the position of superiority. Judge not that you be not judged. Right? Don't judge a wrong view of God. And then secondly, look at verse 2. See, a wrong view of God will skew how we view everyone and everything else because a wrong view of God will lead to a wrong view of others and a wrong engagement of others. Here's verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, don't judge. He's talking about a wrong view of others. He's talking about having a wrong view of others, that, that, that I would have some kind of superiority over others. Or that not, not that I can't speak into your life. Don't miss this. 
he's getting at the heart, but that my attitude, my attitude would be wrong in speaking into your life. And so what, what Jesus is saying is the judgment you pronounce will be judged. You will be judged with the measure you use will be measured to you. Remember back in Matthew 6 where Jesus was talking about forgiveness. If, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you your trespasses. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. That principle of, listen, I, I'm going to hold you to the standard that you hold others to. It's that same concept here. You want to be harsh? You want to be critical? You want to be condescending? Hey, guess what? I'm the God of the universe. I'll be that to you. Or you want to model the the ways in which I've been gracious and kind and compassionate? Then I would lovingly extend that to you as well. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's getting at in this wrong view of others that I would even have the thought that I could conduct myself or treat them in that particular way. Way. See, it's, it's this idea that the standard of engagement is absent of mercy or love or care or compassion, that God himself would use that with us. See, some of us, some of us, we hear that and we go, wait, 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 wait. Does that mean I'm just supposed to coddle and, and accommodate and cave and, and, and just, well, they said it's true for them, so then what am I really supposed to do? No, that's... that's not anything close to what he's saying. Again, he's getting at our heart attitude. That's what he's addressing here. He's addressing our heart attitude in this. See, we don't have to fear that we have to just give people whatever they want to believe and accept that as truth. There is definitive, absolute truth all around us. Um, Two plus two is what? No, 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 it's seven, all right? My teacher just doesn't really understand math. True or false? No, it's four. I don't know math, right? Okay, there's a definitive truth. Uh, H2O, I was thinking um, of the two. Is that two hydrogens or two oxygens? Doesn't matter, whatever you feel like. No, it does matter. Because one sustains life, uh, the other doesn't. Right, I can start putting letters together and say, what word is that? A-N-D. Well, that spells party. No, that spells and. Right? There's definitive truth. It's, it's exclusive by nature. We see that everywhere. So G- Jesus is not saying, hey, let's abandon that. Right? He, he's coming back to the heart. And so again, right, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture here and help fill this out. Let me actually I, start by asking you this question. Um, as a loving parent, no, let me back up. As a parent... If I gave my child everything they wanted, am I a loving parent or am I a selfish parent? Some of you are like, oh, that's like a trick question. I don't know. What is it? (laughs) No, you're a selfish parent. Let me be really clear. If you give your child everything that they want, that's selfish. Now, if you give your child everything that they need, that's an entirely different ballgame. But in Hebrews 12, God talks about discipline. Who loves being disciplined? Anyone in here? Any gluttons for punishment? You kind of like that? Okay. I, I appreciate the effects of discipline. Don't really love the act of discipline. And yet very clearly in Hebrews 12, what God tells us is because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. Some of you have experienced the discipline of God even this week. And you've been like, God, why? And what God's saying to you is because I love you. 
because I care for you. In fact, in that very passage, one of the things that he says is a parent that does not, that withholds discipline from their child and just does what the child wants makes that child illegitimate. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? See, the parent that loves doesn't give them everything that they want. It gives them everything that they need. Revelation 3, Jesus tells us this same truth. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Proverbs 5, speaking of the wicked, says that they die for a lack of discipline. What Jesus is getting at in verse 2 is our heart, our heart in that how we engage people. Is my heart right? Is this what I want for them? Or is this what they really need? And then to be on the, on the receiving end of a hard word. Can I recognize that the person's intent is to care for me or are they just attempting to blow me up? Right? Right relationships. Don't judge. There's a wrong view of God. Don't judge a wrong view of others. And then verses 3 through 5, we don't judge because we have a wrong view of ourselves. We have a wrong view of ourselves. To, to be totally blunt, it's an inflated view of Ourself and a minimized view of others. Look at what Jesus says. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Do you see the discrepancy there? Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice, you're going to ignore, you won't address the plank that's in your own eyes? Pastor Stephen, why don't you come up here for a minute? I need your help. I'll let you be the good guy in this. Okay. So here's, here's what you've got to understand about a speck. A speck is not just sawdust. It was, it, it's like a small twig. So go ahead, stick that in your eye. Okay, just, just hold it up there. Now, now imagine that was actually in his head. Can we all agree he looks ridiculous? Okay? And, and, and there's an issue that has to be addressed. Now, the problem that Jesus is saying is that, that it's just ridiculous when I look like this... Right? And I'm like, hey man, can I, can I get that? I'm going to start smacking him in the face with the plank that's coming out of my face. Right? And the hubris of this example is nothing short of ridiculous. You got a real problem, bro. And you look ridiculous. Right? And yet, and yet don't we do this? We're like walking around, no, I don't have any issues. I don't have any problems. What are you talking about? Plank coming out of my face. And yet... I want to get at that, but I'm going to ignore this in my own life. See, I have a totally wrong view of myself. Either I'm unwilling to engage it, or I've deluded myself into thinking, hey, this really isn't a big deal, but that, oh, wow, you've got some real issues, pastor. Get off. You're, I don't even know why we call you pastor with a speck in your eye. Right? Looking like a fool the whole time. With an enormous plank. See, and, and what Jesus is saying, listen very carefully. Let, let me just read verses 4 and 5. How can you say to your brother, I mean, it's just, it's a funny example. Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. Then he says this, this, this is so, so harsh, right? You, you hypocrite. And yet, wasn't that example the very definition of hypocrisy? I'm so fixated on this little thing, and yet I got that stinking board coming out of my face. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, <clears throat> do, you, do you remember... 
Do you remember the example in Luke 18 where there's the, the Pharisee and the tax collector and they're, they're praying in the temple? And the Pharisee uh, is standing there and, and no kidding, I mean, these are his words. God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. And then he talks about from a human perspective what makes him greater than this supposed sinner next to him. And then it says that the tax collector couldn't even look up. Like just down and, and, and beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the ridiculousness of that scenario is on par with the ridiculousness of this scenario here in Matthew 7. And it's some of the very same problems. I can identify all the issues in everyone else around me, but I can't identify it in myself. Right? And we're, we're, we, will, we will censor a tiny flaw in another and yet conveniently forget about the great shortcomings in ourselves. And so Jesus says, you hypocrite. Now listen very carefully. The hypocrisy, the hypocrisy is not that I would attempt to speak truth into someone else's life. The hypocrisy is not that I would uphold a particular standard. The hypocrisy is that I would uphold it in one area, but not in another. Because at the end of verse 5, what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, listen, you've got to go to your brother. You've got to take the speck out of his eye. But, but, but the process to get there is to deal with ourself first. It's to address the plank in our own eye. Right, the honest engagement of self. That's what it is that Jesus is getting at. So understand this. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be without sin. You don't have to be without issue without being able to speak into someone else's life. See, that, that, that's what people often say. Well, 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 you can't tell me. I mean, you, you, you do this. You're right, I do. Struggle with that for a long time, and I'm praying by God's grace that He would release me from that, that He would free me from that, because I want to be righteous. I, I want to do the things that He's calling me to. But my shortcomings is not an excuse for you to live in your shortcoming. See, the hypocrisy isn't that we have to be perf- perfect, the hypocrisy is the manner in which we would go to someone else. That, that I could come to any of you, right? That I could come to any of you and be like, hey, Elias, bro, you got a real problem. You got a real problem and you need to deal with that. Or Alan, you got some issues, bro. And we got to get on that. David, what is wrong with you? See, what Jesus is saying is not, and please don't do it like that. Okay, there's a much more gracious and loving way to do it. But what he's saying is, listen, start by taking this out. Okay? Examination of self. Okay, Mike, you've got a huge, <laughs> enormous plank in your face because you've got a huge, enormous issue in your life. See, because when I deal with this, what happens? The nose comes down, the superiority falls to the ground, and humility encompasses me. And now when I got to go to someone, listen, man, I struggle with this too. But I I just, you got to know you got something sticking out of your face. And because I love you, I want you to know that. Do you see the distinction in that? See, what Jesus is, st- he's still calling us to, to hold each other accountable. He's just calling us to first and foremost deal with ourselves before we go to the person. It's the manner, it's the heart, it's the conduct and the behavior in which we do this. And just ask yourself right now, what's the plank in my eye? 
what's that enormous thing that's sticking out of my face that's obvious to everyone else? And either, either it's not, if it's not obvious to you, then um, self-awareness 101 is probably a course you want to take, okay? Uh, but it probably is uh, pretty obvious to you. And if it's not, or you don't think there's anything, um, go, to, go to a loved one or some people you really trust, and they'll uh, clear that up for you in a heartbeat, okay? Because you're a broken, fallen sinner, and you desperately uh, need Jesus like everyone else. But what is that thing? What's that thing sticking out of your face that needs to be dealt with? And how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to deal with it? Now, let me just summarize this real quick here. Uh, three things. You might want to jot this down. You might want to just store this away or whatever. But first of all, understand first the necessity of examination. The necessity of examination where you and I desperately, desperately, desperately need to examine ourselves. One, because we're sinners. Two, because we're broken. We're not perfect. We're going to continue to make mistakes. We're going to continue to have issues. We need it. We need it from ourselves. We need it from others. Why? Well, see, it's what we see in the middle of verse 5 then you'll see clearly. See, clarity comes with examination. When there's examination in my life, clarity is what comes from it. Who wants clarity in their life? Who wants to be able to see clearly? Who wants to know without a doubt of uh, what God's calling them to and what's up ahead? See, you can't have that without examination. Clarity comes with examination and uh, certainly able to help ourselves and to help others. And then finally... Look at what he says at the end of verse 5. To take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? That, that, that's still part of it, is that you and I would remove that. That's the, the accountability, the, the sharing of life, the speaking into one another's lives. That's why discipleship is so important. That's why we've been talking about it for weeks. That's why I stand up here and say, listen, this is the life of the church. Do one of those things. I don't feel the least bit bad about telling you flat out, you, should have, you have no excuse for not being in one of those groups. It's the life of the church, and it's what we all need is people speaking into our lives. Right relationships, right relationships, right relationships with believers. Jesus then moves to this, like at verse 6. Verse 6 is just kind of weird, honestly. Um, but if you, if you understand how some of the things that they would have understood, it helps us to to flesh this out, but I think Jesus is really moving from our engagement of believers to our engagement of non-believers and where we would have discernment with them. Here's what he says, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Okay, well, dogs, uh, dogs weren't cute house pets in Jesus' day. They were more um, like feral animals. Uh, they usually ran in packs, uh, often violent, uh, more like running into a pack of coyotes than like some cute, cuddly little thing that a lot of us have in our homes. Okay, And so when he's talking about something holy, he's probably referring to meat that would have come off of, of, of the altar. Right? Why would you give that to dogs? Some nasty, feral animal. And pigs... And pigs are, pigs are still gross, okay? Pigs have never not been anything but disgusting and gross. And if you love pigs, that's fine. You're free to love pigs. You just got to know they're gross. They're, there's a reason they're unclean, all right? Um, and, and so, so the, 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 the pigs, and that's understood, pearls. So what's he mean by pearls? Well, pearls, pearls were the most precious thing in that day, the most precious commodity, more than diamonds, more than gold, pearls. 
That's why in Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the pearl of great price, right? Upon finding that one pearl, the guy went and sold all that he had. It's this precious, precious commodity. Now, in the life of a believer, what's the most precious commodity that we could have or share with one another? It's Jesus and the gospel. So wait, 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 wait. Are, are you saying that what Jesus is saying is, is that we would withhold that from others? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of confusing, but that does seem to be exactly what he would be saying here. That, that there may come points in, in, in our lives where there are certain people where we would withhold what is holy, we would withhold what is precious because it's such a massive affront to God. Now, I, I don't think that's just wholesale. I don't think, well, you're not a believer. You can never have the gospel because we've got to hold that intention with how many verses could we go to about taking the gospel to the nations and, and those that don't know Jesus and how we're responsible to share. And so we want to hold that intention with that. But I think one of the things that Jesus is teaching is that for those who are uh, hostile, who are adamantly opposed. You ever been in the situation with the guy or the gal who any, where anything that comes out of your mouth that's related to Jesus or to church or the gospel, it's, it's just this violent, malicious attack or the entrapment. Or, you, you ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? Right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. It, it, it's that. Where Jesus is saying, don't. Don't even give it to him. Wait, What? Okay, well, how do I know? How do I know when it's that, when it's not? This is so confusing. Right. And so what do you need when you're confused? Well, you need discernment. Where do you go to get discernment? You go to Jesus. Specifically, how do we get discernment from Jesus? We go to the Scriptures and we go to Him in prayer. And so it's no mistake that that's exactly where Jesus goes. Look at verse 7. See, He starts talking about a right relationship with God. Two things specifically. Um, one, in verse 7, we see where we would seek God in prayer. Look at what he says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. <clears throat> Knock, and it will be opened to you. See, if I'm going to admonish anyone, if I'm going to speak truth to anyone, if I'm going to uh, consider whether or not to withhold the gospel to someone who's incredibly hostile towards it, I think a great place to go is to be uh, before the Lord, getting uh, clarity and wisdom and guidance and discernment from Him. In fact, I think over and over and over again. And so that's exactly what Jesus says, right? Ask and seek and, and knock. We're seeking God out. God, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us discernment? And in Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, what Jesus was talking about when it came to prayer, He was talking about the proper and improper ways that we pray. Right? Pray then like this. Don't be like the hypocrites who do this. And he's teaching us the, the, the do's and don'ts. Yes, this is good. No, this is bad. Here, it's not what's proper and improper. Here, he's really getting at the power of prayer. And more specifically, our persistency in prayer. Right? Ask. Can we just be honest for a moment? That's where most of us stop. God, would you do this? That's it. We're done. Well, he knows. He'll get to it if he wants to. Right, but what does Jesus say? He doesn't tell us to ask and be done. Ask. What's the next one he tells us? Okay, come on with some confidence, loved ones. Seek. 
seek. Now, I don't know about you, um, when, when we lose something in my house, we, we don't kind of seek like this. Nope, didn't find it. Like we, we had this series of time in our lives where our boys, the, the twins, had these little blankies. And if you lost one of those things, then the world literally came to an end. And so that we can think of times where we would literally turn our house upside down looking for those things. That's what it is to seek. And that's what it is to seek God. See, most of us were not persistent And then knock, okay, knocks, that's just kind of annoying, right? Like, hey man, you in there? Hey, 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 are you going to answer, right, this persistency? Because see, the distinction that you and I make is we confuse what God wants from us in prayer with how we think we would want to be engaged in prayer. Right, because when, when your kids, when your kids are persistent, Dad, can we, can we do this? Dad, can we do this? Dad, can we do this? No. Dad, can we do this? No, don't ask again. Dad, can we do this? And, and don't even think that none of y'all have not been here at some point in time. Okay. If you ask me one more time, and then something's getting drop kicked into next week or some other ridiculous thing like that, right? Right? And yet, what's Jesus' response to prayer? Jesus doesn't say, If you ask me one more time, he's saying, come ask me one more time. Why don't you come back again? Why don't you draw close, draw near? In fact, uh, flip over. I want you to see this, uh, Luke 18. uh, Luke 18. Because I think all of us, all of us, myself included, we, we, loved ones, can, can I just be honest? We got a long way to go as a church when it comes to being persistent in prayer. We got a long way to go. Okay, so let's take a lesson here uh, from, from uh, Luke 18. And this parable of the persistent widow, here's what Jesus says, uh, verse 1, Luke 18, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. If that's not persistent, I don't know what is. And so then he begins to tell us the parable. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, right? Unrighteous judge. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Right, can you see her? Probably the first one there every morning. I want justice. I want justice. Give me justice. I'm sure she's respectful. I'm sure she's honorable. But day in and day out. Verse 4, for a while he refused. No, no, no. Go away, and then realizing I'm not going to break this woman, look at what he says next. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. When's the last time you and I beat God down over something? When's the last time you've been just so gripped, so longing for something that you wore God? down. Maybe never. Maybe you've never wore God down. But look at what Jesus goes on and says, uh, verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He's like, listen, take a lesson from this guy who's not even a righteous judge. I'm telling you something. I'm telling you something. That's what he's saying. Verse 7. If the unrighteous judge will do that, what about the completely and totally righteous judge of all mankind and of all of eternity? 
Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will we find faith on earth? I think Jesus is saying, like, you know, listen, I don't know. I don't know when I show up whether or not I'm going to see people who are persistent. I don't know whether or not I'm going to see people who are beating me down in prayer. But we keep coming after this. See, seeking God in prayer. Prayer prayer is, is not about God being a cosmic vending machine or a cosmic genie who dispenses to us things that we want. Prayer is about our union with Christ, drawing us close to Him. That's why Jesus says in John 14, ask anything in my name that my Father may be glorified. He's like, you start asking me about things that are going to fire me up about the glory of God. I'm all about that. But far too often we look like the people in James 4. We don't have because we don't ask and we don't receive because we ask with wrong motives to spend it on ourselves. We're not after the union with Christ. We're not after drawing close to Him. We're just after like, hey, give me this. I want a new car. I want a new this. I want a better that. Are we seeking God? Are we seeking Him? Not simply asking, seeking and knocking. Are we, are we, are we desiring and, and longing for a union with Him in prayer? Are we looking for Him? At a right relationship with God where we begin to seek Him out. And then notice this, verse 8 through 11, where we would know God, not just simply knowing about Him intellectually, we would know Him uh, in totality, uh, specifically His response. Look at what Jesus says, verse 8, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, did you, did you catch the main thrust of what he said there? He didn't simply repeat verse 7. See, the main thrust of what we see right there is the certainty of God's response. That God is saying, I will always, always, always answer prayer. And you're like, wait, wait, no, 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 Mike, because there, there's some things in my life where God didn't answer prayer. Did he not answer prayer or did he not answer it the way that you wanted him to answer it? Those are two very different questions, loved ones. See, he will, well, I mean, it's right out of the mouth of Jesus, for everyone who asks, receives. Okay, uh, there's nothing special there in the Greek that just means that. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. It's like, hey, if you do this, I will do this. God will always, always, always respond in prayer. It might not be what you thought it was going to be. It might not be what you wanted it to be. But listen very, very carefully. It is, without a doubt, what is best for you and what is right. Do you understand? It is what's best for you and what is right. Then he goes on. He says, let me just drive this home. Verse 9 and 10, he gives us two just totally cruel examples or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And, and their, their bread back then was smooth and shaped like a rock. So your son asks you for bread, and you're going to give him some stone, and opens up his bag, his lunch or something. He's like, hey, it's a rock, right? That's cruel. Siblings, yes, that would totally happen with siblings. Any loving parent, no. Verse 10, if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Not only is it cruel, but that's even dangerous. Then Jesus drives it home. He says this, If you then who are evil, if you then who are evil, do you know that Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitful and wicked and no one can understand it? Do you know that Isaiah tells us that the greatest deeds that you and I could do are, are filthy rags in the very presence and sight of God? We're, we're evil, all right? Corrupted to our core. 
And yet, if those of us who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, amen? I, I, hopefully, hopefully you parents are um, well-versed in giving good gifts to your children, but you're evil and you can do it. How much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Right, if us who are wicked and corrupted and, and, and evil can give good gifts to our kids, why would we think that God himself can't go so much further? And so God will respond. He will respond. Knowing God and his response, are we, are we persistent? Are we persistent in prayer? Are we seeking his union? And then are you trusting in his response? When I said that it's best and right, do you believe that? Or are you like, maybe for you? It's the truth, loved ones. It's the truth. Right relationship with God. Jesus then ties this all together, verse 12. Just really is a, is, is a form of a summary of all things. We'll use this to really wrap this up and tie it all together. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let me just point out three things in verse 12 that I think apply to the, the totality of what we've looked at in terms of a right relationship with all. Uh, first of all, it's ongoing. It's ongoing. The, the verb tense in the Greek does not allow for a single event, a one-time thing. But it's continual. It's ongoing. You and I continue to do this. Second of all, it's universal. It's universal in terms of all the things that we would choose. So whatever you wish, or in everything, some of your translations say. It's not some things, it's not most things, it's all things. And then finally, it's obligatory. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Not if you feel like it, not if you can, not when it's convenient. Do it. You do it. One other thing I want to point out, verse 12, the emphasis here on this verse is doing for others. It's not an emphasis on what I get from others. All right? At the core of right relationships is this uh, self-servant, uh, self-sacrificing mentality. And so right relationships, right relationships. Am I right with God? Because if I'm right with God... And it's going to lead me to a place where I'm right with others. And it's going to lead me to a place where I'm right with self. But if I'm wrong in any of these things, I'm likely wrong in all of these things. So just ask yourself, ask yourself, am I willing to seek God? Am I willing to trust His response? Am I willing to seek His discernment in the different uh, relationships in my life and then proceed in humility? That's what it is to have a right relationship, loved ones. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that your relationship with us on your end is never wrong. God, that you never, you never fail in that, you never shortchange us in that, you never cheat us in that, it's always, always, always right. God, I pray that we would long to have right relationships, I pray that we would seek to be right with you, I pray that we would seek to be right with others. God, I pray that you would cause us from the heart, from the core of our soul, from the depths of our being, 
to long for this, to desire to be right because you desire for us to be right. God, help us. God, help us in our response to those around us that we would be right with them. We love you and we thank you and pray this in your name. Amen.